As many of you know, uh, this series entitled, it's been going on so long I can't remember what the title is, uh, Self-Knowing, A Quiet Passion. It literally has been going on from various Wednesdays for two or three years. Um, <clears throat> and what I've been doing is taking this theme and attempting to build on it, refine it, and to make it more and more practical and applicable to our lives. Um, <clears throat> there are, it's, there's always the difficulty of some people who have been present before and have the frame of reference, uh, understand the frame of reference, but many new people, uh, and so I attempt to do my best to uh, do a very, very brief review. I'm going to do things slightly differently this evening. Uh, usually, almost always, I don't like teaching with notes. I feel quite encumbered. Uh, the way I was trained, and I'm very comfortable doing it, is to give talks like a jazz musician which is you get your theme and then you just blow. Uh, and that's good. The problem is sometimes uh, when you're talking about a sutra, which I will be tonight, one of the Buddhist teachings, I've given uh, jazz talks on the Four Noble Truths and left out one of the truths. So it's very spontaneous, but uh, and I feel more with the sutra, I feel that I want to make sure that I do it justice. And so I, I do have it in front of me. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is, it's a very, very short teaching of the Buddha. And I'm going to read it first and then uh, attempt to bring the, uh, the perspective that, we, that's been, that we've been developing. Not so good? Okay. Uh, for all these weeks uh, and see if we can bring that all together. This, the suture's main value, perhaps its entire value, being that it is practical, that it's alive, that it helps us live. Um, it's also timely. This is the Donapaka Sutta, and it's an exchange between a king, King Pasanadi, and the Buddha. And the one translation of it is, King Pasanati goes on a diet. Yeah, so, okay, you'll see. Once when the Buddha was living at Savati, King Pasanati of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting, and sat down to one side. He was obese. I mean, there's commentary, so I know more than what these lines say. So uh, he had a good appetite. The Buddha, discerning that King Pasanati was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, perfecting, protecting their lives. Now at that time, the Brahmin youth Sudasana was standing nearby, and King Pasanadi of Kosala addressed him, Come now, my dear Sudasana, 
and having thoroughly mastered this verse in the presence of the Buddha, recite it whenever food is brought to me. That's made him an offer, as you'll see. And I will set up for you a permanent offering of a hundred kahapanas, however much that is, every day. So be it, your majesty, the Brahmin youth, Sudasana replied to the king. Uh, as the, this uh, young man was paid to utter this, to utter this verse before the king ate every time. Then King Pasanadi of Kosala gradually settled down to eating no more than a cupful of rice. The commentaries make it very clear that uh, it was more than adequate. It was, it was, a, it was a meal, but uh, not a bucket. Okay. No more than a cupful of rice. At a later time, when his body had become quite slim, King Pasanadi stroked his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this utterance. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways, for my welfare right here and now, and also for in the future. Okay. I will come back to this uh, going through it uh, little by little, but the perspective that's been taken for all these, I guess it's years, um, is one of the practice is not so much uh, coming and uh, surrendering yourself to a bunch of forms like retreats and techniques and methods, uh, as appealing as that often is, many of us come to practice exhausted, emotionally exhausted. And uh, in the approach of education, that's more active. It's asking us to learn, uh, to learn about how we live and to um, unlearn what needs to be unlearned and to develop what needs to be developed. In order to do that, it's more active. There's room for creativity, for experimentation, uh, and you have to, it's more than just assembling a whole bunch of techniques. And what I found is, at least at the beginning, uh, people resist it. It's sort of, if I could put it all into one sentence, what people are telling me, either with their expression or literally or in little notes, something like, for God's sakes, we just just tell us what to do, we'll do it, and then we'll be okay, right? Wrong. Uh, it isn't a mechanical process, not at all. There are techniques, there are methods, there are forms. There, the center is one of them. Or is there con- these are conventions invented by human beings. The techniques have come along to help us human beings. And are they valuable? Of course they are. But what I've been emphasizing is much more that awareness is finally the whole thing. This is a wisdom path, remember. There are other styles of practice, some much more devotional, although you can't separate them. It's it's mainly academically you can, because a wisdom path without devotion would be sterile, so that there's always uh, love and wisdom go together. They flourish together. Wisdom without love wouldn't be true wisdom, and love without wisdom can be damaging, what the Dalai Lama calls, uh, uh, well, what did he, uh, foolish compassion, idiot compassion, it's stronger. (laughs) In other words, where you mean well, but because there's no wisdom, you actually worsen the situation. So what I've been trying to do is to emphasize that um, self-knowing is, is for a human being to decide that they really want to get to know themselves. And 
not just think about themselves. And many people think, well, I already, I've been on this planet for 50, 60, however many odd years, emphasize odd, and uh, I've learned some things. How could I not, just by living? And of course that's true. But the learning here is uh, has a somewhat different meaning. It's um, finding out who you are is the heart of the Buddhist teaching. In order to find out who you are, you have to get to know your own mind. You can read all the books in our library. If you don't get to know your own mind, uh, you won't un- really understand what the Buddha is talking about. There's one main book to read. It's the book of you. And in order to do that, you have to have this capacity to see, to really pay attention. Because the learning and the understanding, which you could call wisdom, comes out of clear seeing. As the seeing develops, you can call it mindfulness, awareness, presence, a lot of words for it. Um, The quality of our life has everything to do with the quality of the seeing, of the quality of our awareness. Because how we see things is what we think they are. So that there's an ancient Indian uh, teaching which talks about mistaking a a rope for a snake at dusk because it isn't lit enough. The light is, is dim. And, of course, there could be the other way. There's mistaking a snake for a rope. Uh, so practice is more and more for the awareness to become accurate. Now, of course, first and foremost, it's about ourselves. I have a hunch that everyone in this hall uh, is pretty good at being sensitive and attentive and alert uh, to some realm of life. The kind of seeing I'm talking about, of course, is inner seeing. And it expresses itself through action, uh, and, uh, because otherwise it would just be, you know, just sit down on the cushion. Uh, I don't believe the Buddha is saying that. Certainly that's not the theme. What I've been uh, emphasizing has been that self-knowing is getting to know yourself in a non-sentimental, non-romantic, it's not analyzing yourself, it's not psychologizing, uh, because the quality of seeing Awareness that's, that's being suggested is mirror-like. That means it's not for or against. That's what we're developing. That turns out to be what liberates us, the understanding that grows out of accurately seeing our motives, the way our body works, uh, our thoughts, and, of course, uh, the implications or the consequences of our actions. It's not limited to ourselves. It's, it includes everyone in our life. So um, the learning, a lot of it takes place on a, can take place on the cushion. My first teacher, Anagrika Munindra, who was an Indian teacher, uh, asked me why I wanted to study uh, Vipassana. I had just been uh, teaching for many years, not many, ten, as a professor. And I said, well, I want to get to know myself a lot better. I didn't feel I did. And he said, okay, sit down and take a look. That's meditation. Okay. And it is. And it isn't easy because you don't want to see a lot of the things that come up. But you also have to equip the mind so that it is steady and clear in the face of what comes up. And more and more, uh, whatever turns up, whatever emotion, whatever uh, thought, uh, whatever that is, the mind with training, with self, with a commitment to uh, this art of seeing, inner seeing, 
which is where we are typically not as developed as our ability to see outwardly, uh, as that develops, that's what liberates us because we begin to see how we fabricate things, how we make up what life is, and then then we have to free ourselves from, from it. In other words, a lot of what our suffering has to do with is unexamined, uh, is in the Buddhist teaching, ignorance. Uh, so, <clears throat> now the self-knowing, quiet passion, it's quiet in the sense that um, there's a flame. If you don't get really interested in understanding how you live, and I'm assuming anyone who comes here, uh, you're interested in the quality of your life. Otherwise, why would you bother? There's so many other things that you can do so that you are interested in the quality of your life. And this is one way, just one way, for me it's been a good way, to approach the life that you're already living. And we're lay people. If some of you, if any of you are monks or nuns or intend to be, uh, you would still not be exempt from paying attention and learning. But what's being emphasized here is that um, the ability to learn from life, not only on a cushion or on a special place designated for the learning, a meditation center, but in every aspect of learning. And when I go into this little teaching of the Buddha, even from eating, that is, can we turn the process of eating into a vehicle for self-awakening? Uh, generalizing from that, can anything help us wake up? And, of course, the answer would be yes. So um, what has been emphasized is self-knowing, and I use that term rather than self-knowledge, because knowing is in the active present. It's something you learn from atten attentiveness right here and right now, and then that's the end of it. It's not, fi it's not filling up a spiral notebook with insights and then writing a, a story uh, or, or a novel about it. That knowledge is something you accumulate. This quality of knowing, it's a value is only in that moment. It's fresh. It's new. It sees accurately more and more as we develop it. And it only gets developed if you do it, like any other skill. Um, so daily life, which is where we spend most of our time, is... Uh, obviously very, very important. This center was founded on that principle. That is, most meditation centers are in bucolic areas in the country somewhere uh, away from all the uh, madness. And here we are plunged right in the middle of it. Uh, but there's a reason for it. First of all, uh, lay people, that's us, not crazy about the term, uh, but we're kind of stuck with it, at least for a while, uh, we have a life uh, that is very, very different than a, a life of a celibate monk or nun um, in all the various spiritual traditions, but certainly the, the Buddhist ones that I know. And if we don't learn how to enable our life as it is to become the same as spiritual practice, I think uh, the endeavor will be pretty limited. I've seen that. And I don't think just sitting forever will do it. First of all, we don't sit forever. We have to get off the cushion. We have families. We have jobs. Um, we uh, go to school. Or we don't have families. We don't have jobs. We don't go to school. And that's the problem. The people in relationship want to get out. The people out of relationship want to get in. 
There's always something. Is, is, have you found a shortage of problems? For us? I don't think so. We can turn anything into a problem, okay, and we're good at it. Uh, so self-knowing, uh, that quality of learning that can come from living, um, it's sometimes translated as wholesome. I don't think that's such a good translation. Uh, I prefer the translation of skillful. And in the Buddha's use of skillful, what is meant is those mind states and verbal uh, actions, talk and even silence, and physical actions that, that are beneficial, that are beneficial for you and for people in your life, those are skillful. Those actions which are harmful, mental states, verbal behavior, and then physical action that are that cause suffering are unskillful. And the Buddha, in a very famous teaching to his son, emphasizes both, really, are, the, are what we're trying to do. Is that is living a life that's both skillful for ourselves and others. Skillful is simply another word for wisdom. Uh, wisdom is sometimes translated very often as the art of living. Here, uh, the art of living is living skillfully. That means... How do you live in such a way as you minimize the suffering that already exists on the planet? Uh, your part in it. Okay. Uh, what this is suggesting is you really can't do that unless you commit yourself to enabling the mind to be fit, to really look. And if you don't have interest in it, nothing much is going to happen. You can just take up the breath or metta meditation or a mantra or whatever and just in, out, in, out, in, out, omani, pavi, omani, pavi, and it will improve your life. You'll become more calm. You'll have more energy. There are all kinds of benefits that come from concentration. Wisdom is, see, a, a, a huge amount of wisdom comes from foolishness. Or is, so the skill that's learned often comes from mistakes, and quotes, that we make in life. Ways in which we are unskillful, where we do harm ourselves, where we do harm others. Now, the difference is the, the quiet passion is, is the quiet, is the fire uh, to learn. Uh, that is to, to learn about how we actually live. And to me, that's what makes the whole practice interesting. Uh, the whole process. It's an inner voyage. It's a voyage into yourself and then as that becomes more clear, bring the fruit of that clarity into every aspect of your life, including eating. Okay, but certainly not limited to it. And so uh, that's been emphasized. That is, uh, first of all, dissolve the split between uh, sitting formal meditation practices, which are invaluable. I do them. I teach it. The center does a lot of it. We have strong connections. I do teach in the country, and so do the other teachers here. People here go on retreats, so I'm not against that. It's just that inevitably you come home, and there it is again. These people are waiting for us. <laughs> and, uh, of course, now we're all uh, luminescent from our retreat, and they're waiting to see the results of that. Okay. Um, Let's start. Let's see what this, this king has to say. So, first off, he ate a whole bucket full of food. 
and then approached the Buddha, engorged, panting, sat down to one side. The Buddha discerning. Now, first of all, it's interesting who he went to for help. Now, I don't know if they had nutritional experts. Now I can't keep up with all the different kinds of experts and certifications, CMs, certified nutritionists. I rather doubt if they had certified nutritionists, probably healers of some sort. You know, Ayurveda or the early stages of it was existing at the time. Uh, but he went to the Buddha. So the Buddha uh, was known as, one image form was as a physician, but of, in a sense a physician of the heart. What he was healing was not so much the physical body, but the huge amount of uh, sorrow that human beings carry around, which is different from physical pain that's inevitable if you have a body. Okay, so he went to the Buddha, so we already know we have a candidate to learn. The Buddha, discerning that the king was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. Now, if any of us Western teachers could just give a short thing like this and get away with it, it would be great, but we can't. We can't ring bells and say, get out, as in Zen. We have to, go on. We have to do things like this evening, because otherwise you know, it just wouldn't work. And I'm, it's not demeaning. It's that we're learning a path that, in some cases, has been around for thousands of years in Asia. There are a lot of things that are assumed. They don't have to be emphasized. Here, it's not true. Okay. When a person is constantly mindful. Okay. Let's start there. That, this is what the Buddha is, uh, the advice. Uh, I was hinting at it. What does that mean? Uh, that means that the person is sensitive, attentive to what's happening. Constantly mindful. That means more and more, it's not episodic to begin with. And some of you who are new or even those who've been around, you know that perhaps most of our day goes by and we're not aware. Okay. Now that can grow depending on, uh, what you, what you value in life, what you want. Uh, uh, but that can grow. It's like anything else. We can re-educate ourselves where we begin to see that awareness is indeed precious, really precious. Now, even that is an adventure in learning because we hear it now. It's, we hear it all over the place. Don't we be here now, now, the power of now, the voice of now, uh, Ram Dasta, you know, be here now. That's, and it's been going. It's nothing new. So we know that the present moment, being awake in the present moment, seems to be important. There are all these books about it and DVDs and uh, and everyone's paying hard-earned cash to go to workshops, and all, so we know it's important. Um, okay, great. In this approach, it's important because the, the clarity of the seeing is intimately related to the quality of learning that, is, that possibly can come out of it. It's because you can be brilliant, uh, you can have a lot of knowledge, and suffer tremendously. Ignorance in the Buddhist sense, you can be illiterate and not ignorant. Ignorance in the Buddhist sense is ignorant of your own behavior, of yourself. Ignorant of your full potential as a human being. So that you could have a huge, you can know everything in the, in, we have a very large library and continue, suffer perhaps more than somebody who has not even finished high school. So, and yet, knowledge has its place. Uh, in terms of orienting us, some of it is what I'm doing tonight. Orienting us, perhaps stimulating us. Um, to some degree, I'm putting pressure on you. 
I hope it's a good pressure, but you're here. You asked for it. So you can't blame me. Uh, you can. People do. But you're, it's, but the, the pressure is for you not to believe what I'm saying, but to find, but to take, a, but to look. Now, why would awareness become so, what's so great about awareness? Well, I'm not going to spend the evening telling you what it is, but unless you for yourself see that this is a precious gift that a human being has that can be infinitely refined, uh, it'll just be another nice thing that you learn. Now, how do you do that? Just like any other kind of learning, there are times when the mind is quite awake. I'm sure everyone in this room, even if you just walked in for the first time, whatever did it, it might be a crisis, an emergency. Uh, of course, there are drugs that help it along, but I don't mean that. Um, we know there are times when the mind is at peace and clear, as clear as it can be at that time in our life. And uh, life feels different when the mind is awake than when we are uh, in conflict, uh, caught up in things, preoccupied, dull, low energy, uh, uh, nodding off. And if you start to see, oh, that's why you have to learn it, I can encourage you. But you have to begin to see that awareness is uh, precious and that we squander so much energy by devoting a tremendous amount of energy into unawareness, approaches to living that we know don't work. We know it. It's not that uh, some of it we don't know because self-deception is very big for us humans. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that uh, and because people will say, well, I don't think I have that much self-deception. I've, that's dangerous. Obviously, you don't know if you have self-deception. <laughs> that's why it's self-deception. If you knew it, it would be self-knowing. Okay. So, uh, by, in a sense, putting pressure on you to look, to pay attention. So what is this mindfulness? Here are a few hints as to what is this seeing that's being talked about, this wakeful quality. And it's something that can be, we already have it. If you're alive, you're conscious. You're all looking at me. You can hear this. Uh, if you, you're human, so to be, one unique thing that we humans have is as we live out our life, we have some degree of consciousness of what's happening as we do it. This is refining that ability and developing the willingness to learn from what we see and hear both inwardly and outwardly. Okay, so the, this quality of seeing, uh, it's mirror-like. That's an ancient Im- image I can't improve upon it. What that means is the seeing is not a means to any end, just like a good mirror. The value of the mirror is it has no investment in anything. It just reflects back to you. Okay, it just shows you what's there. You look in the mirror in the morning, to shave or to do whatever we all do in the morning. And if it's not flawed, it reflects back to you. You may not like what you see, but it's showing you something. Okay. Awareness and what's going to be suggested is everything is in a sense a mirror showing you that. Food can sh- teach you something about yourself. People certainly can teach you something about yourself by our reactions, which we assume are Well, this is the way things are. We begin to see this is the way things are for me. And I've constructed it this way. 
They're conditioned ways of living. Because we know, we look around and there are other people who have different ways of doing it. So one of the things is the awareness is not a means to an end. It's not a stepping stone. For example, just awareness of the breathing, you will hear that the mind becomes more calm and more clear just by becoming, as that ability becomes more continuous. So then people try to be aware of the breath in order to become calm and clear. That trying is extra and just impedes the unfolding of real silence and clarity. Just if we give full attention to just being with one breath, 100%, totally, as we learn that, it's not to lead anywhere. We're not making a deal with it. It's not, a, it's not um, I'm doing this in order to get that. It's not for or against what it's looking at. A mirror uh, is not for or against what it shows. It shows the palm of my hand. If I show the back of my hand, it shows that. When I take it away, it shows you. Okay? I turn it around, it shows me. That's its beauty and its power. Uh, can awareness provide that in a realm that we desperately need? Technologically, scientifically, we are beyond brilliant. And I, perhaps we're dazzled by that brilliance because everyone gets all excited about all kinds of new gadgets and even getting to the moon or wherever we, is net Mars, I guess, is next and new weaponry and so forth. Do you hear anyone get excited about somebody who's, uh, that person's really wise or, or at peace? Now, if I could levitate, this joint would be packed. <laughs> I, I, Larry King would, uh, I would be invited again and again to Larry King to be interviewed. Uh, because we, what we really are impressed by is power of one sort or another. This is a very unassuming quality, wisdom. Now, um, the seeing is also something that uh, is a quality that's refined by using it again and again and again. So it's not for or against anything. In other words, it's not reactive. It's just there. It just shows you what's happening. It's not invested in getting an outcome. The outcomes, which are plentiful, are byproducts of clear seeing. The understanding comes out of the calm and clear mind. This is real understanding, not intellectual understanding, which has its place. In a place like Cambridge and environs, uh, we have so many highly educated and brilliant people that when we can explain something, it feels as if the job is done. You under, I'm suffering right now, yeah, because when I grew up, my mommy did this, and I, you know, oh, of course, and it's satisfying. And that isn't what this is about. It's seeing the pain, if there is pain. It's seeing the joy, if there is. Intimately, no separation. It's just fully being sensitive. And intimate is, is, is a good word for it. There's no separation for whatever it is, whether it's a breath or loneliness or fear or, or our reaction to food, whatever it might be. And it's a human skill. It's a skill that can be developed if you value it. And you come to value it by seeing its value. Just preaching about it, I don't think is going to help too much. But when you start to see, my goodness, look at the quality of what it's like to be alive when I'm awake. And look what it's like when I'm not. Look at the quality of the actions that flow from a mind that can see clearly. How it uh, short circuits so many unnecessary ways of creating suffering 
for myself and others simply by seeing it. Uh, clearly, we become more interested, more motivated. But that would come from you. Then it's your own. Uh, no book or teacher can do this for us. We have to do it for ourselves. We have to be a light unto ourselves. The Buddha's parting words when he was dying. Okay. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken. When is that? Okay, now I've had some training, as uh, no doubt you have. Um, the best advice, best help I was given, I was in a form of yoga many years ago, five before I came to all of this, and um, we were advised, we were given a lot of uh, teachings on food, on, on eating. And this may seem strange to you, but I, um, we were, we were, uh, we would eat, and we would, we're, we're, there was a guideline. The guideline was half full, a, a quarter liquid, and a quarter empty. Was that difficult for me? I would say it was worse than difficult. It was almost impossible, but it was difficult. And how do you know that? You pay attention. Now there's been research. This is not Dharma research. I've just been reading it in Italy and in the United States and in various countries where people, uh, when do you end the meal? When do you know a meal is over? For many people, it's when the plate is clean. Other people, it's when uh, the TV they're watching, if that show is over. Uh, for some, they're all, and then they're, what this is saying is it's over when the, there's an intelligence in the body. When that body. And that intelligence is often needs to be awakened it isn't fully operative because we've neglected, perhaps, our bodies, not everyone. And with attention, just like with a child, if you give it attention, it starts to flower and to bloom. So the body can, can actually tell us, you've had enough. Then, of course, and here's where it sounds very simple, sounds like the latest diet fad. Maybe I should uh, try to peddle it. Uh, Forget the endless diets, as you know. And this one is just wisdom will do it. Don't worry about it. Just get clear and everything will work its way out. And knows when enough food has been taken. How do we learn that? I would say one way you learn it is by seeing what it feels like when you overeat. We've all had that experience. People talk, oh, God, I can hardly move. Uh, okay, the difference is if you're a yogi, and that term is used for a practitioner, a meditator. And one meaning of yoga, by the way, is skillful action. It's not just putting your leg behind your ear or that's what's come to be thought of as yoga. That's just physical yoga. It's one relatively small part of what total yoga can be. Okay, so uh, you start paying attention and you see that when you eat just enough, it's a very different feeling. You're less sleepy. The mind is more alert. And then, at least in yoga, what was emphasized was different foods contribute to the quality of the mind. Certain foods uh, incline the mind to be more dull, heavy. It's not just the amount. It's also certain foods have that effect. Certain foods um, agitate the mind. Certain drinks, we know that. Uh, other foods incline the mind to be very clear, calm, and uh, light. And so you need all three, but what you're, what you're encouraged to is for you to discover for yourself, because one size does not fit all. How that, but that's only valuable if you value the quality of your mind. 
if you value the quality of awareness, that's for me is meditation. Meditation and awareness are the same for me. Uh, meditation is not merely a technique, it's a way of living. Okay? Uh, if you value that, then anything that contributes to an alert mind is useful. It's skillful. It's helpful. Even if it's just a little bit. It could be a massage. It could be whatever it is. Okay. Uh, but food is not a small one. So here would be the amount. It would also be what you're eating. And you'd have to pay attention. Now, for, when I, I practiced in, uh, in uh, Korean Zen for a year at a monastery there, and late at night, uh, when we would sit into the evening, I mean, beyond the evening, uh, they would give us green tea. I had never even heard of green tea. This was many years ago. And they picked it right in the mountains. Was it organic? Sure it was. No one, it just was growing there right in the, right the mountain. They picked it. And, okay, fine, what's the big deal? You throw these leaves in the hot water and then you let it steep, you drink it. But if you pay attention, you could see that it had an effect on the mind, which at the time I was a coffee drinker and loved coffee shops. Still do, but I drink tea there now, mostly. And you saw that, hmm, this is interesting. It is a stimulant as well, but it also seems to calm the mind and it seems to persist for longer periods. It's not a jumpy kind of alertness or wakeful quality. It's not a cup of black coffee in the morning which really gets you going. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just telling you this is how, what I learned. And I learned because people already knew this. It had been going on in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean monasteries for centuries. Okay. So when I came back, I started playing around with that, and I found that the quality of green tea actually is a useful aspect of life in addition to it can taste good. Okay, now, um, let's stay with tea for the moment. <coughs> I got so interested in tea that I started reading into history food with King Pas- uh, of Camellia sinensis. It's not herbal tea. It's just that one Chinese leaf. And... Uh, to begin with, in ancient China, it was medicinal. That's all it was, it was seen as. You took it when you were sick. And little by little, they then found out that mm, it can also taste good. Uh, it can help with digestion. It's good for your teeth. It wasn't just for illnesses. Um, then as the centuries unfolded, then um, we human beings got hold of it. And then we invented all kinds of porcelain and fancy teapots and then it became a status item and an aesthetic developed around it. And you wouldn't believe, I've had a little bit of training in tea ceremony. Chinese is uh, much more informal. It's closer to what I think most Americans would be comfortable with. In Japan, at least for me, forget about it. Uh, so it then picked up, not only it, it had a medicinal value, but then we learned that it also had a taste value. And then... What developed around it was calligraphy and pots and cups and then forms, the way in which you drink tea with a, another person, uh, and all kinds of, a whole culture evolved, including a, a status and people called tea masters and people who weren't tea masters who just uh, had this, uh, another, another kind of sectarianism evolved. I've seen it from the inside. Um, uh, where you look down on those people with their Lipton tea bags, you know. Okay. Uh, 
And then, okay, so what? What makes it a Dharma practice? Well, on a physical level, uh, the tea, I'm being slightly technical now, the tea does have some caffeine, but it's much less than coffee, and it's balanced by something called theanine. Theanine uh, calms the mind, enables the mind to be serene. Something happens chemically in that interaction, so it's actually very useful if you value meditation. Now, people love tea even if they're not meditators. But if you value the quality of mind, it's just one small thing. One small thing. It's not the, the only that you have to drink tea or you won't get awakened or your life will be terrible. I'm not saying that. It's just that, so then, uh, and then when it came to Japan, what was emphasized was the personal as well, so that it, it became, in quotes, spiritual. Now, what does that mean? We already know that it was medicinal. We already know that uh, it could taste good. We already know that it could there could be an aesthetic around it, how you brewed it, how you served it, and so forth. And then it became social, how you could uh, enjoy people's company. And then it became, when uh, in the hands of Buddhist monks, it went even beyond that. It included what I just mentioned, and that was to use the whole the form of drinking tea with others so that, to sum it up quickly, because everything I'm saying applies to food as well, uh, there's a saying, uh, what is honored to begin with is for you to be the, the ideal host. There's a host and a few guests in tea ceremony, especially in Japan. The, the point is to share some tea together in peace and harmony, to learn how to be with people that way. And it's very formalized. It's very laid out um, and ritualized. But if it's done properly, you're supposed to be awake in the process of doing it. And what does this mean? When it's really carried out, there's no host and there's no guest. Uh, that means there isn't this self-conscious person who's being the host, who's taking care of these other self-conscious people being guests. That means the mind is clean and clear. It's free. It's free of any of these identities, these uh, labels that, it, that we take on about ourselves, these images and conclusions. I'm a tea master. I'm a, medit- I'm a Vipassana meditator. Uh, I'm on the third stage of awakening. I'm only on the second stage. These are all uh, made by us. Not a, they're not made in China. We made it up. And the mind keeps making up distinctions. Okay. So at a certain point, when you go beyond that, of course, that would mean you're at home with the whole process of making tea, of having people come over, of serving tea, and the people who are coming are as well. Uh, then there's no host and there's no guest. That's the real tea ceremony. What it means, it's what I just said. Okay, that's also what we teach yoga here sometimes. So some of you, I know, uh, go to some of the classes. The real yoga would be that there's no postures. You're executing a forward bend or a headstand, but there's no one doing it. Now, to begin with, of course, there's self-consciousness because you're trying to learn learn something. My foot goes here, my arm goes there, and vanity comes in on it, as it did with tea and as it does with food. What do, what do I eat? Different, different styles of food, gourmet, vegan, uh, lacto-vegetarian. You know, we have all these different approaches to eating. It's the same, it seems, in everything. Okay, so that in when in real yoga, there's no mind. That means the posture is perfectly executed, 
but there's no one doing it. If it doesn't mean it, if you're very new and it sounds insane that I should be locked up for talking this way, have patience. Maybe I should be, but stay with it. What it means is there's no self-conscious me. There's just awakeness. Wakefulness is doing the serving of the tea. Wakefulness is doing the forward bend. Wakefulness is eating. Okay, so now in training, I'm enriching what the Buddha said because here it's pretty thin. You know, he's just saying, okay, just be mindful and you'll be okay. Um, Lots of luck. At any rate, when you go to retreats and are encouraged, certainly here and at various Zen, Vipassana and Tibetan places, um, mainly I'll speak from what I know, is you have an opportunity to really eat carefully and more slowly. And you can bring full awareness to the entire process of eating. And you'll see that the mind is very involved in it. As you pay attention as to how you gather your food, how much you take, let's say, as you move through the line. Um, and then what happens when we eat? Uh, there's the body, which needs nourishment, and which tells us how it's doing, what it likes, what it doesn't like, when you've had enough, when we don't. Have. And then there's the mind. The mind, and, we, we, and, and one of the major insights in Vipassana meditation is insight into the difference between mind and body. Can you tell the difference? In the Buddha's language, he uses a strange English locution. He says, being mindful of the body in the body. What in the world does that mean? Uh, if you're eating, that means just the pure bodily life without any mind that is telling you what's happening or embellishing it or uh, and some attitudinal coloration to the food. It's just a raw, naked taste. Now, uh, I'm going to make some. Uh, here's where I started learning about this. Someone came years ago, who was in the practice group we had and said, I've been eating French cheese, all kinds, for 10 years before I realized, doing this eating meditation, I don't really like French cheese. <laughs> so I said, well, why do you eat it then? He said, well, when I was going through college, all things French were great. You had to spend a junior year abroad in France, and, you know, if you were really cultured, you had to learn French. And if you're, Some of you maybe don't know that. It was true. Uh, but then when she just tasted raw taste, she saw the mind was telling her, this is great, this is delicious, but it wasn't. Uh, and I realized, wow, uh, I wonder what's happening now. How many people really like tofu? Or, I don't know, do you? How about tempeh? Okay, oh, it's great, it's very, you know, it's uh, all kinds of benefits, good for the heart, and low cholesterol. Yeah, but do you like it? And if, how do you know? Okay, and I'm going to make perhaps some silly uh, things, maybe there. But I think they're in this in this direction. Um, if you came over to someone's house, you invited you and a few friends, and they and they served you some burnt fish. How would you feel about that? But if they say it's Cajun, oh, <laughs> Cajun, that's different. Can I have some more? <laughs> or if someone you came over and they said. Here's some fish. I didn't get around to cooking it. It's raw. Just, and you, would you come back? But we say it's sushi. Oh, sushi. Delicious. I've never tasted anything so good. Do you see what I'm getting at? So that if you start paying attention, you'll see the enormous role that the mind plays in everything. 
It wants in on everything. And what I'm talking about is the ego, me. Me as an eater, me as a tea person, me as a, me as a, an art. It's all true, the Zen of archery, martial arts. It's all the same, what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know what King Pasanati did because the instructions are so slim. Uh, but I'm filling it in. For most of us, we need to do it more than that, and we have to pay attention. So how do we learn? Uh, let me give you a few examples. Um, many corn and blueberry muffins. This is a corn and blueberry muffin cemetery in this belly here. Because I don't know why I love corn and blueberry muffins. Secondarily, rice pudding. Custard pudding of any kind will do. But corn... Okay, and so there are thousands of dead corn muffins and blueberries buried in here. And as a result, there's a little curve here, which I know would be better if I didn't have it. Okay, now, sometimes people probably, is that your big vice, just to eat too many corn muffins? Uh, I'm not saying it is. But in terms of food, I have a reasonable diet. But I do love corn muffins. Okay. So, and I realize I ate, uh, ate them often, and I start reading about what was in them and all the rest of it. So now uh, I had a de- I devised my own strategy because I love them too much. So I go into any of the local coffee shops. This is contemporary self-report, okay? Um, and I'll buy a, a corn muffin. And here's what I've learned: typically, let's say the corn muffin, by con- contributing to overweight, has severe can have severe consequences. We're bombarded with that information now medically, aren't we? Is there anyone who doesn't know that it can be hard on us? Now, some of it is due, due to chemical imbalance. A lot of it is due to genetics. And then some of it is due to what the Buddha is talking about. So that there are consequences. What I've seen in myself and others, as I've drawn them out, is that we overemphasize the gratification that comes from, let's say, a corn muffin. And we underplay the consequences. Very convenient. Because then we can do what we like. Okay. So... I, wore, I bought a, this happened a couple of months ago, I bought a corn muffin with a nice cup of uh, gunpowder green tea, sat down, and I started, I was happy to have it in my New York Times, it's a nice ritual, and I started chewing on it. It was okay, but it's not that great. It's just a corn muffin, for God's sake. Okay, but the anticipation of the corn muffin was delicious. And then when I actually gave full attention to its taste, Chomp, chomp, chomp. It's okay. It's nice. So I realize a lot of it stems back to my father and uh, having coffee and a bagel. Bagel became a corn muffin and reading the paper. And uh, Now, I'm not saying corn muffins are good or bad. It's just that I learned by, by watching, by paying attention. Then I didn't, I would just have tea and not order a corn muffin. And I can feel tremendous torment, you know, just... Oh, I can't go on. I, I can't go on if I don't get my corn muffin. I've never experienced such a misery as being a life without a corn muffin. Just reading the paper and having this, who cares about green tea? And the New York Times is the same news every day. My corn muffin. And just watched it. Just watched it. If you pay attention, it's relatively trivial. And so you could, but it's heavily conditioned, very powerful, tremendous momentum, uh, habit energy that's been perfected over many, many years, uh, depending on how old you are and how much you've, uh, so it's a source of joy. Now, is the answer 
cut that out, just eliminate it. Now, that is one solution. For example, when I practice with monks in, in different Asian countries, you, you eat one meal a day, and you just eat what you're given. Or is there no, no choices? If you're sick, you have a bit of a choice. So whatever is put in your, your bowl, that's what you eat. So you, this choice is taken away from you. So you really can't control your nutritional taste. You can control amount, but you have to eat what's given. Now, a different quality is developed from that, is that you learn to accept things. But you also d- learn not to value. Uh, there's a beauty in eating, in a- arranging f- food beautifully, in its taste. Does, is that unspiritual? Does it, is something spiritually just, just, for example, you throw everything in the same bowl. It'd be fruits and vegetables, and you would eat meat, and I was vegetarian. Just throw it in the same bowl, and you just eat it. And one quality is strengthened, but what isn't strengthened is the joy of eating. Does that have to be suffering? I feel a lot of the practices that have come over here are very colored by the monastic approach, which is a very wonderful strategy if you're a monk or a nun. It's a strategy to me. There's nothing totally holy about it. Sorry if I'm uh, blasphemous. If I am, I can't help it. But I've seen it's just human beings. No matter what outfit you put on and whether you shave your head, have a beard, or as one of my teachers in Korea put it, this is about men, monks. He says, look, no matter how well long their robes are, and all that, they still got those things down there, so don't forget that. You don't know what I mean? All right, I can't help. It's still a guy. Okay. Um, this is, oh, I think, is, is diet getting depressed? Is that it? I don't know. I'm sorry, if I, because the whole point is to learn our way out of this. So it is possible. Let's see what the Buddha has to say here. And he knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. Now, this is an interesting term, and this is, in a sense, what's crucial about this sutra, why why we're going into it tonight. (coughs) Your body will become more slender, and then the health benefits that flow from that are well known. But what the Buddha is also getting at from the commentaries is the Buddha would often use uh, be on many levels. Uh, what is also becoming sl- uh, more slender are your afflictions. Greed, hatred, delusion. Those are, if you come to a Buddha center, you'll hear that till it's coming out of your ears. The tendency of the mind to constantly want, 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 never have enough. And it can be very subtle. It could be ideas. It could be food. It could be anything. The, the tendency of the mind to not want, to be aversive, <coughs> angry, aggressive, and then, of course, ignorance, which is where it all comes out of thinking that what will make us happy is getting more of what we think we want. And what will make us happy is getting rid of what we don't want. And so uh, we spend a lot of time doing that. Now, uh, if you use diet or eating to see that mechanism at work, you see, for example, just my simple-minded corn muffin. There was ignorance at work. The mind made up an incredible scenario about how wonderful it would be to have my corn muffin with the paper and tea. It's okay. It's nice. But most of it, it was staged, and I, and I was the, uh, the stage manager. I played all the parts. I wrote the play. I did the, uh, the scenery. I bought the times, and I got all the equipment, and I, was, I did everything. I was the director and the audience. 
Okay, now, so how do we get out of this? That's why awareness is so crucial. Because finally, if you do, those of you who are new to this, if you do this practice, more and more you're going to be encouraged to understand that you are awareness. Everything is coming and going in the mind. Moods come and go, thoughts come and go, images come and go, likes come and go, the weather comes and goes, politics, different, comes, look around you. Everything is coming and go. Is it possible for there to be something stable in life? And what is being suggested here is there is. It's this quality of being the, that which in us which knows. Now, as that gets deeper, it takes you into what you could call genuinely spiritual practice. Because you go well beyond conditioning. You go well beyond what you've been brought up, including religious conditioning. If you've been brought up as a Christian, of course you respond to certain symbols, either very negatively or very positively. If you've been brought up as a, as a I was had an Orthodox Jewish and a Marxian, both at the same time, so I was just schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, but these are learned, and children learn them, and we're very sensitive. And what we learn those early years, uh, we have to deal with it one way or another. Uh, this practice, and to me, any legitimate wisdom meditation practice, takes you to a realm that's beyond thinking. That's before all of this conditioning, and it's untouched by culture, and it is not affected by what's going on with CNN reports. It has nothing what to do, whatsoever to do with that. That's its beauty. Now, mindfulness is a very early stage of that. We're learning how to pay attention. That is connected to something that uh, is sometimes called the immeasurable, because if I try to put it in words, I'll call it silence. The great silence, sometimes enlightenment is called the great silence. They're just more words. But what it is saying is our mind is vast. And if, if eating, in addition to using the eating to enable the body, take care of the body, because the body can be an ally in spiritual practice, in meditation practice, or it can be an enemy. It is not saying that unless you do all these things, you can't really develop spiritually. I remember many years ago when Suzuki Roshi died of cancer in his early 60s, uh, there was one person who said, well, and how could he be enlightened? It doesn't have necessarily to do with that. The body has, in a sense, a, uh, a life of its own and unfolds, and a person can be quite awake, but you can do what you can do to help life along, and that's what's being suggested. So from the point of view of health, clearly it can be helpful. From the point of view of enjoying a meal, it can be helpful. But now this is going one step further. It's by fully paying attention, not only do you edit out un, uh, unskillful eating habits, which is a form of wisdom, a kind. It's not the deepest, but it's something. And where the mind uh, goes beyond and in addition, while you're eating, in other words, there's no one eating. There's no, there's no host and there's no guest. So that's where the slimming is coming in, because the technical term, for those who've been around the block here, is a kilesa. A kilesa sometimes, I would define it as a mental toxin, an emotional affliction. It's that which obscures the mind's ability to see clearly. Okay. So you can use food, you can use anything. Washing the dishes, and there are sutras on, cooking. It doesn't matter. Uh, to train the mind in addition, so that Many, it's uh, a whole person, W-H-O-L-E, is both eating and learning and getting free and perhaps even becoming a little bit healthier. Let's finish up this. So, 
all their afflictions become more slender. Remember, afflictions is not just on the physical level. It's also uh, psychic. Now, at that time, and then I'll see the part where he tells this young man to remind him. And so the young man, at the beginning of each time when he would eat, he, he gave him money. Uh, he, would, he would recite the Buddhist poem, the Buddhist four lines. And, but it was not to encourage aversion to eating. It was to encourage being mindful of eating and learning from what that activity has to teach about himself, King Pasanadi. Okay, now he, then when he himself is so grateful to the Buddha, uh, when he says, and this is his final utterance, uh, the king, he says, indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways, for my welfare right here and now, and also for the future. Okay, that for right here and now, what the most obvious interpretation is, your immediate well-being. For the future, uh, one, one interpretation is the future here means uh, if rebirth. In other words, uh, rebirth is taken for granted. If you go to Asia, if you speak to a Tibetan teacher and you say, I have real doubts about there being any rebirth, I think, you know, you die, you go into the ground, that's it, curtains. You know, uh, he'll look at you as if uh, condescendingly, not just Tibetans, many of the teachers I have, but then again, if you come in my upbringing, a Marxist upbringing, you listen to a Tibetan or someone who takes it for granted that you'll be reborn and say, this person's deluded. You know, do they really know? Okay, so uh, personally, I don't know. And, I, and it doesn't bother me. Uh, don't know means freshness, openness. It means I don't know, but it's also for me. It may not be for you. It's totally honest. I don't know. If it turns out that when I die, that's it, fine, I won't know anything else, you know, curtains. If it turns out that there's more to go, another life to live, sign me up. I'm ready for action. Okay. So now what this is saying on one level is just exterior, body, but it's a deeper level. Again, the Buddhist always speaks on, not always, but often on different levels. What he's talking about when he says become the future, what he means is um, there's another way of talking about rebirth. And what the rebirth that is being talked about, as I'm using it right now, is from moment to moment, we, the ego is reborn as a self, as a me, or as a mind. Uh, Larry the teacher did you like the talk tonight? You didn't laugh much, and I care about that. So it hurts my feelings. Who got hurt there? Well, apparently Larry has more meditation. More sitting is called for. Uh, you don't, is it true? Am I being honest right now? I'm just using it as a teaching device. Do you know? I'm not going to tell. Okay, but so that we're reborn again and again, and the suffering comes in there as we get reborn as an overweight person. Now, it's one thing to be overweight and to take care of that because it's, it makes some sense if it does to you. It's another to suffer psychologically because of all kinds of reasons that I think are obvious. Um, it's also in everything we do. There's me, uh, for example, the meditator. Real meditation in this and all the others approaches begins with the death of the meditator. 
when you, if you think of yourself as a Vipassana meditator, those of you who have been doing this for a while, that's a useful illusion to maintain because it gives you energy and inspiration. You come here, you practice. It's uh, maybe you feel good about yourself. But at a certain point, you have to see, or you will see. You don't have to see it. You may see it. I've seen it. And it's not just me. That this is just the ego camouflaged as a meditator. It's saying, okay, this guy wants to be a Vipassana meditator. He's not interested in money and all the other things that he was before, food, money, uh, being handsome, being this, being that. He just wants to be a great meditator. What do I care? If he wants to be a serial killer, I'll be that. The ego is shameless. It just wants to be. And so from moment to moment, certain things are reborn and then they pass away. It's momentary birth and momentary passing out of existence. There are gaps throughout the day when we're just clear, when we don't think of ourselves as being a this or a that, and they're often our happiest times. You're not the host. There is no guest. It's just people enjoying a cup of tea. Okay. So uh, what is doing for him is not only, let's say, helping him with a future life, but he's also helping him to see how his mind makes up a person who is very much chained to food that's gone relatively unexamined and as a result not only has hindered physical health but has nourished this me, the sense of me as being a this or a that. Low self-esteem, high self-esteem. I'm going to quit here. There's much more that we can go into, honestly. Um, this practice is not about self-improvement. Our culture is big on self-improvement. Okay? That means to get a bigger, a better self, a kinder self, a gentler self, a more compassionate self. You tell me, whatever it is you like. But it's still, we're, we're fixing up the personality, trying to make it better, polish it a little, sandpaper a bit off it. And does some self-improvement come along with practicing meditation? Of course it does. But really it's about uh, going beyond the self. So at a certain point, Finding out who you are, self-knowing is finding out who you aren't. Because no matter what comes up in the mind that says, oh, you're a wonderful person or you're a jerk, none of them, they're just thoughts. And you start to see them. They arise, they pass away, they lose their power. And so you could sum it all up, don't make anything. Now, suggestion. Try to take a meal now and then. It's easier if you come on a retreat here or wherever you go to practice. But you can do it at home. Slow it down and uh, go through the process of gathering your food, even preparing it, and eating it more carefully than you usually do. But come to it with a fresh mind, like you're looking at the way you relate to food for the first time. I'm not giving you a norm how you should be, a one-quarter empty, one-half uh, solids, one-quarter of fluids. I'm not telling you that. What I'm telling you is self-knowing is getting to know yourself on that fresh, alert. Um, it's You all know this term. It's beginner's mind, don't know mind. You've seen it on so many book titles. We bandy it about. Okay. That's it. <laughs> Next time we're checking your weight. If you haven't lost weight, you're out. <laughs> if you're underweight, you better gain some weight or you're, or you're out of here. Okay. Um, 
A few questions. Not, uh, if any of you have to leave, please leave, but let's start the questions because I did uh, – I need to slim down my talking a little. Uh, please. You don't what? I don't read the, the books in the library um, because that's how I usually do things. So I'm trying to, you know, pay attention and listen, you know try to practice and listen to what people say. Instead. I don't know if that's wise or not. But uh, what people say? What what's said here, for example? Oh yes. Yeah, and so, but, but, but what I wanted to ask is, um, I just wanted to say I actually. The distinctions that you're making between words like wholesome and, and words like skillful, which make more sense to me. And one word that is just confusing for me because of being raised in a religious tradition that I rejected, that would be Catholicism. Um, well, I never understand what people mean. Well, specifically here, I want to know what you mean when you say spirituality. I don't have no idea. <laughs> I hate the term. It doesn't mean anything. It means whatever you want, a spirit, this and that. Uh, let me put it in terms of maybe more. Uh, I think many people who come here in different meditation centers are refugees from some organized religion. Okay. Uh, myself, from Orthodox, uh, seven years of Orthodox Judaism and 14 generations of rabbis on my father's side. I'm not, I gave up rebellion a long time ago because that's the same trap. Uh, and I don't hate it and I see some value in it. But... I'll put it in terms of a question. To me, there's a difference between the religious heart, I have to use language, and organized religion. And it was the difference between the essence of what the Buddha, Jesus, and so forth, what they really did taste. I'm, for the moment, assuming that they, they were genuine. And then what gets done to it as we organize it and build in, and institutionalize it, which has certain benefits too. People need to come together to feel supported. In, in difficult times. But what, here's my question. Is there anything that's inherently sacred that isn't put together by human beings that would not be, you, in other words, you would have to go beyond Buddhism, Catholicism, Islam, any ism that you want to talk about. You may use that form, because people can and do, uh, but at a certain point, uh, you go beyond it. I worked with a, uh, a Carmelite nun in Italy for a while. She was behind a cage she was what is called a uh, enclosed nun for 27 or 30 years. She's still there, training seven other nuns. She'd, uh, and she never read a thing about what this kind of stuff. And I talked to her, and she knew exactly what I was talking about. And then at a certain point, she was talking about something that was just human and universal. And, uh, and I said, is it okay to tape this? And she said, are you kidding? If the bishop ever heard what I'm saying, I'd be in big trouble. Okay. <laughs> So I'm not discrediting that there is, I'm not saying there isn't something uh, truly sacred, but no matter what word I pick, spiritual, the problem with spiritual, it just means, let's say if you say, oh, that person's very spiritual, they're okay. Well, they're nice, he's cute and all, but he's not spiritual. I can't go out with him. Okay, it can mean whatever you want it to mean, so could what, any words. But what I'm getting at, meditation in a sense is a journey to go as deeply as you can. And if there is any reality here, whether you call it God or whatever you want to call it, uh, then it can be discovered because it's in you. If it isn't, then uh, for me, it, it, it's not of much interest. But 
Um, so practice is to come to that. I use spiritual just because there's a physical, then there's a psychological, and let's say whatever's beyond the physical and psychological, call it whatever you like. Uh, I don't know, but I agree with you. Does that make any sense? Not really. You're, you're, no, we're, we're not done here. No, I'm not done yet. I'll be happy to. That doesn't mean it's untrue. <laughs> yeah. But I doesn't mean it's true either. I the, um, well, I like the last thing. The last thing you said, I guess, is helpful. The last thing you said. Um, people make a distinction all the time. Even like you know, like my father was in uh, Al-Anon and talked about the difference between you know institutionalized people. Always think of this distinction between religion as an institution and and then something else. <laughs> Um, but I guess it's always what, what's sort of confusing the kind of, you know, the belief in some kind of supernatural, like metaphysical something that isn't... But, there's, but this is not about beliefs. <laughs> no, I understand, but this is not about beliefs. I don't believe in anything, that, but I'm not cynical. Right, but words mean something. So I have to use words, but I could say the inconceivable or beyond the beyond... Would that make you happy? The point is, this is just words, too. And the words you're getting from teachers rather than books, their value is as pointers and perhaps to keep you doing it. But finally, each, it's a, each person has a pilgrimage, a journey into themselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.